Jen. She's 34, and in the last eight months, she started experiencing menstrual cycle irregularities. It would typically come once a month, but recently, it started getting longer and longer. 45 days, 50 days, then 65 days, and then nothing at all for three months. She went to her gynecologist who recommended seven days of progesterone to bring it on. That worked great, and she got her period. However, when next month came around, no period again. The doctor offered more progesterone, but Jen didn't want to keep using it as it was only acting like a Band-Aid. She saw another gynecologist who said she likely had PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. However, her ultrasound did not reveal any cyst on her ovaries. The doctor said it's likely she still had PCOS and recommended the birth control pill to regulate things. Jen didn't love that idea, especially since she recently got married and wanted to have kids in the next few years. So she saw a third gynecologist, and he too recommended the birth control pill, unfortunately. Jen did some research and saw that some other symptoms for PCOS were things like facial hair, acne, and excess weight. She didn't have any of those. Yes, she would love to lose five pounds, but she would not consider herself overweight by any means. This left her quite confused about her diagnosis. But with no other answers, she decided to try the pill. After a month on it, Jen did get a very light spotting that resembled a period, but she also felt like a different person, and not in a good way. She was irritable, could cry in a dime, and felt really depressed. She gave it another month, but the emotional roller coaster only got worse. She literally felt like a crazy person, and those close to her were also noticing the significant shift. This was so unlike her, and she knew the hormones in the pill were not working well with her body. While she wanted to get her period back, she could not live like this. She decided that no cycle was better than this. However, she knew she wanted kids and really wanted to figure out what was going on before things got worse. When I met Jen, I knew we needed to explore the PCOS connection further and find out if she did in fact have it and if it was the reason for her missing in irregular cycles. If so, what else aside from oral contraceptives can we do to regulate her cycle while also optimizing her fertility? We needed to find a few missing pieces to solve this health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Jen. When I met her, I saw that none of her doctors tested her hormones or even looked into her diet or lifestyle. I knew there was so much more that we could do for Jen than meets the eye. And joining me on the show today to dig into this a lot further is Ainsley Kirschenbaum. Ainsley is a clinical nutritionist, a personal trainer, and the founder of Sugar Purge. Ainsley, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So Ainsley, what is PCOS exactly? Yeah, so PCOS is stands for polycystic ovary syndrome, but I found that it can really just be a catch-all diagnosis for there's something going on with your hormones and we don't really know what. So it tends to be a a tricky target to hit because people, like you said, with your client, people don't necessarily test hormones or they'll make other, you know, they won't ask the right questions. So 
sometimes women do have literal polycystic ovaries where you'll see many little cysts on the ovary if you do an ultrasound, but some people don't. Um, some people have heavy, irregular periods. Some people don't have periods at all. Some people develop facial hair. Um, some people don't. So it's, it's really across the board hormone imbalance. Yeah. And I think that it's so tricky because the name polycystic ovarian syndrome, right? Stands for poly, meaning many, many cysts, right? And so a lot of people think, well, I don't have cysts. So do I have it? And this is where it gets so confusing. And because like you said, there's so many kind of across the board symptoms, I think it's really hard for people to know. But really, um, if people just have two out of the three main ones, it would be considered more or less that they do have it. Is that correct? Yeah. And actually, I when I was diagnosed in 2007, one of the diagnostic criteria that the endocrinologist looked at for me was my stress, stretch marks on my hips. And she was like, wow, there, it looks like there was a rapid weight gain. That was one of her diagnostic criteria. So it can really be so many variables. Mm. And what are some of the other things that you were having in addition to the stretch marks? How did you kind of go into this area? I started seeing a doctor because I just didn't have my period for a year. Um, and I had been on the birth control pill since I was 18 years old. And then in my mid-20s decided I wanted to at least switch to a lower do dose hormone pill. I didn't think that I should be on a higher level of hormones. And when I switched to a lower dose, then I stopped getting my period. And that freaked me out. So I stopped taking the pill altogether and just didn't get my period at all. So then I went to see the, the endocrinologist and they did run my hormones. Um, I don't remember exactly what the hormone profile was, except that everything was out of balance of where it should be. And they prescribed me metformin and an antidepressant and birth control pills. And that was what they wanted to do and send me on my way. And I knew that that wasn't the path I wanted to take. So I decided to look into it more. And that's really the case with Jen. Uh, she was prescribed the birth control pill without even really having that much testing. And she actually, out of desperation, did try it, but she felt terrible on it. So, you know, when we look at testing for PCOS, what are some of the main tests that doctors do? And for those that think they may have it, if their doctor doesn't run the test, I'd love for you to talk about some of the things to ask the doctor to run, since it seems like everyone sort of looks at it from a little bit of a different perspective. I think the hormone panel is the most important thing. And then to look at it really critically. Um, because With the hormone panel, sorry, can you just tell us what specific hormones in the hormone panel should be run? Because again, I think it's a little bit confusing. Sometimes if you ask a doctor to run a hormone panel, they may kind of think that it's only these hormones versus that. Which ones do you think are the most important within that panel? I think the most important within that panel are the estrogen, the progesterone, the luteal hormone and the follicle stimulating hormone. Okay. So we tend to talk a lot about estrogen and progesterone, but not about luteal hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. But those are what's really, really important in having a regular cyclical menstrual cycle. So if those are off, like follicle stimulating hormone, right? That's what stimulates your follicles to produce a mature egg. So if that's not firing at the right level, then that's where you see those polycystic ovaries because they've maybe fired on a, an egg that's not fully mature and ready to go. So it doesn't leave the ovary. It just stays there. And what are the uh, ranges for that? And where do you ideally like people to be for their follicle stimulating hormone? So the ranges are going to vary 
throughout your cycle. So they were just going to take a snapshot. So I don't actually know the specific ranges, but you at, at a certain time in your cycle, they should be within certain ratios. So when you look at the panel, they'll be able to tell you, wow, these don't look like they follow the pattern for any point in your cycle. And then what about testosterone? Typically with what we see with PCOS is higher levels of testosterone, but that's not always the case. And I think that that can be one place where particularly gynecologists can make an error in diagnosis because they might look at you, they might look at you physically and say, well, you're not presenting as a typical PCOS person. If you don't have facial hair or you're not overweight and your testosterone may not be significantly high, then they say, oh, nope, that's not it. But it could also just be a ratio issue. If all the other hormones in your body are out of whack or low, maybe your testosterone is not out of range, but for what else is going on in your hormonal system, it's not right. That's a really, really great point because you can have lower estrogen and lower progesterone with a normal testosterone, but in relation to the estrogen and progesterone, it is on the higher end. And in Jen's case, she didn't have any visible cysts and she didn't have a lot of the other typical symptoms where she was overweight or had acne or facial hair, but she did have slightly elevated testosterone. It wasn't so high that it was, you know, double or triple the, of the range, but it was slightly elevated. Now, what was also really interesting is that Jen had another marker that was slightly elevated and that was hemoglobin A1C, which is a three-month blood sugar average. Um, Andy, can you tell us a little bit more about A1C and then what's the connection between blood sugar and PCOS? Because I think that's not something that people really think about right off the bat. Yeah. And actually hemoglobin A1C could also be another diagnostic criteria for PCOS. They tend to go together. So your hemoglobin A1C is actually showing your insulin sensitivity over time. So how well your body is responding when insulin is released. And we know with diabetes is when you're not sensitive enough to insulin. So we call it insulin resistance. So hemoglobin A1C is going to show if you're on the track to not being able to respond to the insulin. And just clear this up for people, if someone may not be familiar, insulin is used for... So insulin is a hormone that is used so that you can extract energy from the food that you eat. And it's particularly stimulated when there's sugar in your blood because carbohydrates all get broken down into sugar. And then your, your pancreas sends this hormone, insulin signaling. It's a signaling hormone and it'll go through your cells and say, hey guys, food's here. Let it come in. If your body is not sensitive to that insulin, then your cells are not going to open up and take in the nutrients. And that leads to higher sugar levels in the blood. And that is toxic to your body organs, right? If there's sugar in your blood, not in the cells where it belongs, it will attack the organs and blood vessels. And so what are some of the things that we can do to help lower A1C if it is in fact elevated? So we are always going to approach it from a lifestyle point of view, right? So how can you lower your hemoglobin A1C markers just with diet and exercise and other lifestyle factors? And it turns out that you can really make a big impact. It is eating less sugar, a lot less sugar, less caffeine. It's exercising, particularly cardiovascular exercise. It's making sure you're managing your stress well, and it's making sure that you are 
getting adequate sleep. Those are the, the big components to reducing your hemoglobin A1C. And again, as we were talking about with the hormone levels and ratios, our endocrine system, our hormone system, all works in concert together. So one thing being out of whack is going to affect all of the other things. And one thing that you can control can help bring about change in all the other things. So if we can control our insulin response, it actually can help regulate the other hormones. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it's such a nice synergy of how everything happens in the body. Because if we once see goes down and blood sugar is more balanced, then that will affect how our body produces the hormones and their levels, um, and specifically testosterone. There is a big connection there. So when we're looking at the diet piece of this and trying to lower the amount of sugar we have and to lower the amount of carbs, can you tell us a little bit more about you know the difference between the good carbs and the bad carbs and where are some of these hidden sugars lie? Because it's not just about you know not eating cookies, that there's a little bit more to it than that. Sugar is in everything. In the typical American diet, you're consuming a lot of sugar. Basically, all processed foods are either going to have added sugars in them or they're going to break down in your body into sugar very, very quickly. So when I was healing myself from PCOS, I thought I had a very healthy diet. I was a vegetarian. I was a fitness instructor. I was exercising almost every day. I you know, was eating a lot of complex carbohydrates, a lot of oatmeal, a lot of yogurt. Um, and yes, sweets too, but I didn't realize how much sugar I was consuming because I was eating flavored yogurt, which had can have, you know, 16 grams of added sugar just to have the, the flavor in the yogurt. Um, I loved cereal. So even though I was eating, let's say, whole grain granola or grape nuts or something like that, Cereal is highly processed and breaks down in your body into sugar very, very quickly. So I had to learn how to change the ratios of the food I was eating. So it's not that you can't have any carbohydrates or any sugar. It's just that the protein and fat should be much higher in our diet. And for a lot of us, I, you know, I grew up during the 90s during this low fat craze. So it was a little bit of a brain shift to think about, no, you can have the avocado and the cheese and the full fat yogurt. That's actually better for my body and for most of us to be getting the fat that is naturally occurring in our food. So you can have cookies if you're trying to, to heal your body from PCOS, but you want to be just really aware of the quantity, the quality, and what else you're eating with those sugars. Mm -hmm. And speaking of quality, we also have a lot of different sugars. So there's the artificial sugars that really don't have sort of any quote unquote sugar in it. And then there's also the more natural sugars. Can you talk a little bit about that and the differences and what would be allowed? Sure. So there's so much going on to unpack with it, but we think of natural sugar as being maybe from fruit or from honey or from maple syrup, our body is going to, re to release the same amount of insulin, whether you have a, a glass of 100% organic apple juice or a glass of Coca-Cola with high fructose corn syrup. The sugar quantity is the same. Your body doesn't care if it's coming from apples or from a highly processed corn syrup. But 
apples, a whole apple that you're eating is going to have sugar in it too, but it also has the fiber. It has the vitamins and minerals that are naturally occurring in the apple. And it's going to be satisfying because you're sitting down and eating something. So I tend to say fruit can be a great thing to be having, especially if you have a sweet tooth and you, you know, you want to munch on something. Uh, grapes, for example, are a great, ex- a great example because they are very high on the glycemic index. So grapes will spike your blood sugar. But I always tell my clients, listen, if you have a craving for something sweet, grapes are not M&Ms. You're going to have nutrients that come with it. You're going to have some fiber that comes with it. So grapes can be a decent choice if you're moderating your overall sugar. So if something is says it's naturally sweetened with 100% fruit juice, but it's still a packaged bar or a cookie, just consider it sugar. If something is coming from the whole fruit, then you, you could go ahead. Artificial sweeteners. I feel that artificial sweeteners can be useful if someone is full-blown diabetes and they really can't have any sugar at all. Um, but I tend to encourage my clients to steer away from artificial sweeteners, all of them across the board. They're all very highly processed. They don't do anything good for your body. So I would say stay away. Yeah, I'm completely in agreement with you on that. Um, I tell pretty much all of my uh, clients to stay away from that as well. I think a lot of it also is that when you consume those, aside from all the chemicals and the fact that it has to process through the liver, it also gives your body that taste that there's something sweet, but because it's not real, the body's like, okay, so where's the sweet? You know, and then you have it, but it doesn't register. So it just makes you want more and more and more and just creates more cravings. Absolutely. And I see that too with like fat-free yogurt. Full fat yogurt is amazing. It's rich and thick and creamy and so satisfying. So people who are afraid of having the full fat, I just encourage them to try a little bit and then they're going to feel so much more satisfied and they're not going to go back for more the way that we do when we're eating fake foods. Absolutely. I mean, having a little bit of the good fat really does help so much so that it's not constantly carbs and sugars because those burn through you much quicker. And you're going to, like you said, have to go back for more um, a lot more often. Exactly. Now, I also wanted to ask you about dairy because this is something that I know could be an issue for some people. And there are some people that are more sensitive to it. So when it comes to PCOS, do you feel like dairy is okay or is it sort of a case by case type of thing? I think dairy is a case-by-case situation. I definitely, when we're starting a, a, a diet to reduce hemoglobin A1C or to heal PCOS, I definitely try to dangle the full-fat dairy as sort of a treat or an incentive for getting rid of the sugar. I always want someone to embark on a lifestyle change for it to be sustainable for them. So in order for it to be sustainable, it has to be pleasurable, it has to be enjoyable, and it has to be something that you can actually do with your life. You know, if you work work full time or have kids, you're not going to be spending all your time and all your money on cooking, you know, food all the time. So if you can swing by a bodega and pick up a carton of, you know, whole yogurt, great. Um, Personally, I don't feel great on dairy, so I avoid it most of the time. I don't know that that has anything to do with my PCOS, and it could just be my physiological makeup. Um, Some people do feel fine on it, and some people don't. But I think that if you're trying to give up sugar, and let's say that that's a pretty big cornerstone of your diet, particularly yogurt, a lot of people 
have a lot of yogurt. I think that's, that's like a easy grab and go. So it can be a nice incentive to have plain whole milk yogurt that you put your own fruit on to sort of transition away from your flavored yogurt that you've been having all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the nice thing about yogurt also, especially if it's Greek yogurt, it is so high in protein that then you have that balance that you were just talking about right. where, you know, there is that little bit of natural sugar from the fruit, you know, and dairy has natural sugar in it too, but yogurt, because it has all the protein is going to have a lot less versus something like milk, which, you know, even though it has a little protein, it has a lot more sugar. Exactly. Um, and I think that that's, you know, we see so many commercials for milk uh, being good, but, um, you know, in this case specifically, it really does have a lot of sugar and not great for PCOS. And the the vitamin D that's present in dairy, you're not going to absorb it unless you have some fat in that mm-hmm. dairy too. So you're going to absorb a lot more of the nutrients, the good stuff from the yogurt that you're eating if it has fat in it. So if someone is making all of these changes, you know, they're watching their sugars, they're changing their more processed sugars to the more balanced natural ones, they're increasing their good fats and their protein, they're exercising, they're managing stress. And of course, I understand every person is different, but on average, how long does it typically take for someone to see a change in their blood sugar levels and the A1C? Well, the A1C, like you said at the beginning, is a a test that's going to check you over three months' time. So I actually like that test because it does give people a good amount of time to get into it, right? So we're saying we're not even going to check you for three months, maybe even six months because we don't want to get discouraged and things take time to undo and, and, and get used to things. For me personally, once I started, once I changed my diet, I was in remission within a year. That was the next time I went to the endocrinologist and my hormones were all back where they needed to be. That's amazing. Yeah. And your period came within that time as well? Yeah. So the interesting thing for me was that my period came and I was at about a six week cycle for years from 2007 to 2014. So seven years, about every six weeks, but it was totally regular, totally normal. I got pregnant and had a baby within that time. And then when my older daughter was about two, I decided to try to give up gluten and didn't have any digestive issues. Um, I'd just been reading a lot on the subject and I figured I would try it for a couple months. Um, once I got out gluten, my cycle went back to a four-week cycle. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So I've been gluten-free for almost five years now. Yeah, good and, for you. And it's been totally regular. That's great. Now, what do you think it was with the gluten? Do you think it was that your body has sensitivity to it? Or do you think there is a connection with PCOS and gluten? I have seen some anecdotal evidence about gluten being um, a player in autoimmune issues. So it is quite possible that gluten plays a, a role in PCOS. Um, it could also just be that's the way my own personal biological physiology works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, and if someone is sensitive to gluten, it does create inflammation in the body. And whenever something is out of balance, there's going to be some type of inflammation. So the, the more that we can kind of put out that fire and take out the inflammation. So whether someone's sensitive to gluten and it's taking out gluten, someone else could be sensitive to soy and they could take that out. You know, I think anything that decreases inflammation is going to help. So that makes a lot of sense for sure. Exactly. And Uh, sugar is an inflammatory substance as well. Oh, yes, (laughs) definitely. Now, Ainsley, you have a very neat program called the Sugar Purge. Um, Can you tell us about that? So the Sugar Purge is a 12-day jumpstart to basically eating 
this way. A higher protein, higher fat, lower sugar, maybe lower carbohydrate, depending on where your diet is. Um, a diet that helps reduce your hemoglobin A1C. It has helped reduce prediabetes and healing people from PCOS. Um, so I, I provide dietary guidelines that are what we've been talking about now that give you really specifics of choose these foods, not these foods. Um, for example, right, if, if you, instead of having cereal in the morning, maybe you're going to have yogurt or maybe you're going to have eggs in the morning. Um, or if you really, really, really love your cereal, you're going to have a little bit of cereal and you're going to load it up with lots of nuts and coconut or maybe put butter in your oatmeal. Um, and then I give, in addition to the guidelines, I give some specific food suggestions of here's some things for breakfast, here's some things for lunch, here's some things for dinner, here's some things to snack on. And then people do the program for 12 days. And over the course of that 12 days, I'm in touch with them. They get an email every morning, giving them some sort of motivational challenge, um, giving them some sort of article about nutrition research or specifically sugar. And so that they have a really supportive, nurturing environment to launch these changes. And then hopefully after those 12 days, they feel like they have a good handle on it and can go forward and keep at least some of the changes be sustainable. That's great. And why 12 days? Well, honestly, it used to be two weeks. Um, I always recommend starting on a Monday because you have the weekend before to prepare and sort of wrap your head around it, maybe go to the grocery store. So we start on a Monday. Weekends are really tough. <laughs> so it tends to be that everyone sort of falls off over the weekend, um, which is a great learning opportunity, but it's not a great way to end a program. So it used to be two full weeks and we'd end on a Sunday, but then I just realized we have to end on the Friday before because people weren't feeling as successful as they did. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Now, are you finding that the people that are doing the 12 days, are they able to then continue with at least some of those changes and incorporate that into their lives? Everybody that I've talked to has kept at least something, which is amazing. Um, sometimes all the people's goals are is, is honestly to reduce the amount of sugar they put in their morning coffee from four sugars to two sugars. And if you think about that reduction over the course of a year, it's huge. And so I like to celebrate people's successes. And then if they, if they can feel successful in just even that little thing, they can keep it going. So some people stay on it and really stay hardcore. That tends to be the people who are really motivated because they did have a medical diagnosis that they're really um, wanting to change. But even the people who just wanted to try it, maybe a New Year's resolution or maybe just to, to try to feel better and more energetic, everyone keeps something. That's great. That's great. And I think it's really all about doing the best that you can. And it's all about taking these little steps. And like you said, sugar is everywhere. So it's not that we could cut out every single little gram of sugar at all times, because that's not realistic. And we can't live in a bubble. And I talk about this on a lot of episodes, but it's about doing better and constantly trying to improve. So like with the client you were saying, who was having four sugars in their coffee and they cut it to two, that's half. I mean, that probably equals to pounds of sugar over the course of a year, which is huge. And I think it helps us be more mindful about the sugar that we're choosing. So I love chocolate. I have chocolate every day. Life is just not worth living without chocolate. <laughs> but I can, I can skip a lot of things that I wasn't skipping before, right? So especially I hear this a lot with, you know, moms, the kids have the snacks and they're, they're like, oh, I just can't stop eating their snacks. Like, do you really like those snacks? And sometimes you're like, no, they're just there. So I eat them. And so just 
you know, having that information of like, I don't really want that. If I'm going to want something, I'm going to go for my really good bar of chocolate and enjoy it more. Then you feel a little bit more in control and less like you're on autopilot and you still have a life that's enjoyable. That's great. That's great. I love that. And uh, with the chocolate, I mean, obviously there's so many different kinds. You know, we want people to pick the ones that have the higher amounts of good fat in it, the lower amounts of sugar, um, you know, so we're not talking about Hershey's, right? Yeah, that's Exactly. Very dark, 85%. But, you know, that dark chocolate, I mean, that's what gives you that satisfaction. Yeah. Well, Ainsley, thank you so much for all of this information. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to post all the information about Ainsley's Sugar Purge on my website, healthmysterysalve.com. Thank you so much, Ina. PCOS, or polycystic ovarian syndrome, was at the root of Jen's issue. But thankfully, the birth control pill is not the only way to deal with it. I will tell you more about what we did for Jen in just a second. But first, if you want to contact or find out more about my guest, Ainsley Kirschenbaum, please visit healthmysterysolve.com and go to episode number two. In this episode's show notes, you'll find all the links to the resources we discussed. So back to Jen, even though she did not have any visible cysts and didn't present with the very typical symptoms that are often associated with PCOS, like being overweight, having facial hair and acne, she did have elevated testosterone and her blood sugar was also a bit high. Of course, it's hard to say for sure, but my sense is that if we didn't step in when we did, and if Jen didn't take control as quickly as she did, it's certainly very possible she could have developed all those symptoms along the way and could have suffered much longer than she had to. Thankfully, Jen didn't take no for an answer and looked into other avenues than the first thing that was presented to her. Jen and I worked on her diet to cut out processed sugar and change the more processed carbs that she was eating like the whole wheat bread, and yes, that is considered a processed carb, and other flour products to more wholesome and natural carbs like sweet potatoes, brown rice, and beans. And yes, beans are considered a carb, not a protein. We also got good fats like avocado and coconut oil and clean natural protein such as grass-fed beef and wild salmon. Additionally, we used a product called Sensitol, which contains alpha-lipoic acid and inositol to help support testosterone and blood sugar and a specialized blood sugar formula called Metabolic Synergy, along with a concentrated omega-3 fish oil called Omega Avail Ultra. We use 2000 milligrams, which is a bit higher than standard doses, but that's because there's a lot of research on those types of dosages with supporting blood sugar and hormone balance. Now, omega dosing could be a little tricky because many brands will list the total omegas rather than breaking down the active ones, which is the EPA and DHA. So for example, if you see 2000 milligrams of omega-3 listed on the front of a bottle, but then when you turn it over, it will say 300 milligrams EPA, 200 milligrams DHA, and then other omegas will be listed as 1500, which then gives you that total of 2000, but only 500 of them are in the active form. I use the Omega Avail Ultra because it gives you 1000 milligrams of EPA and DHA in one serving without any other omegas. And we use two servings per day for Jen to get to 2000 milligram dosage that we needed. I'm happy to report the Jen got her period back in two months and her A1C went down from 5.9 to 5.5 in three months. Her testosterone came down from 60 to 42 in three months as well. She was so happy to have her cycle back without taking any hormonal contraceptives, which affected her mood so terribly. She was feeling back to her normal self and so thankful. 
Fast forward a year later, she was able to conceive naturally with her very regular cycle after only two months of trying, and she's now 20 weeks pregnant with her baby boy. I'm so excited for her. And now the real tough stuff comes, which is raising a child. Now, if you're dealing with irregular cycles or amenorrhea, which is when you don't have a cycle at all, PCOS is something to look into. And what I would love for you to take away from this is that the birth control pill is not the only answer for PCOS. Ask your doctor to check your glucose and A1C. Ask them also to check your hormones, specifically estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone, so you can really look at this further. And remember, the lab ranges are very wide. So if you're on the upper or lower end, there's likely something still going on. And then look at your diet. See how you can balance things more. Change out the sugar and bad carbs to the more wholesome ones, and then balance it with good fats and proteins. Make sure you're eating regularly, get good exercise, and look into stress management techniques like meditation, journaling, gratitude. And by the way, if you want to learn more about meditation, I just recorded a great interview with Emily Fletcher speaking on this topic. That episode is going to be coming up in a few weeks, so be sure to check it out. If Jen sounds like someone you know, please share this with them. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. When it comes to health mysteries, don't give up and don't let someone tell you there's nothing you can do. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.